we met in an education camp. She was representing Hunter College. I was representing NYU. You had to work in this camp. So my job was in the kitchen. So I go walk in the kitchen. And who's my boss? There she is. <laughs> <laughs> and she was my boss in that camp environment in 1951. And here we are, 2023. She's still my boss. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to the third season of The Real Deals podcast, Deconstruct. It's Tuesday, September 5th, and your hosts are back. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. And yes, we are back and refreshed after a few months off. I promise we were still working, and actually a lot of time was spent interviewing for Deconstruct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to give too much away, but we have a bombshell lineup of guests. And if you caught our teaser last week, you probably picked out a few of those voices. We're also going to dive into some of the biggest topics that hit the real estate world over the summer. I'm hinting at the crowdfunding debacles and multifamily distress. And a little later on today, we'll get to our first big name of the season, that's Larry Silverstein, chairman of Silverstein Properties. We recorded that interview at Seven World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. But first, let's get to the news of last week. Susanna, I wanted to start with a story you had that brings me back to March of this year when Signature Bank collapsed. The highly anticipated sale of Signature's $35 billion commercial real estate loan book. Yeah, writing that was such a time check for me because, you know, I realized it had been about six months since Signature collapsed, and we were expecting some news on the CRE loan sale this summer. Summer's over, but there's no word from the FDIC, um, apart from these rumors about how the government agency might arrange the sale. So a lot of industry sources are still expecting private equity to scoop up that debt. Um, but Trapp said the government might take a page out of its Great Recession playbook and form joint ventures to buy the loans with third parties. And then the FDIC would kick in some interest-free financing on those deals. Got it. It'll be really interesting to see what buyers are willing to pay for rent-stabilized loans, too. That portfolio includes a lot of rent-stabilized loans, right? Yeah, it's I think it's like 22 billion of the 35 billion are rental properties. And we know a lot of the rental properties are rent stabilized. Um, so, yeah, hopefully it'll put a dollar figure to what these buildings are valued at right now. Anecdotally, we know that brokers are saying valuations have fallen anywhere from 20 to 45 percent. And the thought is the more stabilized a building is, so the fewer free market units it has, the less the property is worth. But the thing is, there have been so few sales of stabilized buildings. If you read my piece for the September magazine on the distress hitting that market, you'll get some more color on just how few are trading nowadays. But that dearth of trades has put a big question mark on building valuations. And the expectation is the sale should provide some answers. And how are landlords feeling about this? I mean, they're anxious. They haven't heard a peep from the FDIC. Some people have loans that are set to mature. Um, they're you know, they're unsure what their new terms will look like. So it's turned into a real nail biter. Got it. Definitely a wait and see situation. So broadening our scope a bit, when we wrapped last season in June, the commercial real estate market was still very much at a standstill. But we have had a few deals close in the last six weeks or so. 
Right. So first, SL Green sold off a 50% stake in 245 Park Avenue to Japanese developer Mori Trust. And that deal valued the 1.7 million square foot office tower at about $2 billion. Price uncertainty and the bid-ask gap has really been looming over CRE deals for the past year. So this trade gives office landlords a number to latch on to. That $2 billion valuation is in line with what SL Green paid when it bought the property out of bankruptcy. And that recent sale price represents a roughly 9% discount from the $2.2 billion the building last traded for in 2017. So this property for context is a building that's in flux. It's an old school office tower that SL Green released ambitious redevelopment plans for to turn it into a state-of-the-art trophy property. Right. So it does show us a slice of how that market is performing. And then there was the sale of the Park Lane Hotel in New York City, which overlooks Central Park. That was Qatar's sovereign wealth fund. It paid nearly $623 million to buy the hotel from Steve Witkoff's company. But the deal was a discount compared to what Witkoff paid for it in 2013. How much did he pay then? $654 million. He originally planned to convert most of the hotel rooms into condos, but he eventually decided there were enough condos on Billionaire's Row. <laughs> That's fair. Speaking of Billionaire's Row, I know this was a couple weeks ago, but Someone paid $80 million for a unit at Vornado's 220 Central Park South. That's about $10,000 per square foot. Right. That was a resale. So the condo had sold for $65.6 million in 2020. So a big flip there. Okay. A couple more news items before we jump into our interview with Silverstein. First, the president of the National Association of Realtors, Kenny Parcell, resigned last week. The New York Times had published an article detailing allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination against him. And another lawsuit story, Grant Cardone, the controversial influencer who has built this huge apartment portfolio, is facing a class action lawsuit from an investor's daughter. According to her lawsuit, her father had invested $5,000 in one of Cardone Capital's real estate funds after he attended a Cardone event in 2019. And she claims Cardone misled investors in social media posts that were geared to entice prospective investors. Mm. So we're actually working on a story about syndicators and multifamily conferences like this. So this is a bit of a call out. If you've ever been to one or have taken a one on one course in multifamily investing, we would love it if you reached out to us. We're at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Yes, please do. And lastly, former President Donald Trump allegedly overvalued his assets by $2.2 billion. That's according to the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who is suing Trump in civil court. The lawsuit actually takes aim at some specific properties, too. In a filing, James wrote that the value of Trump Tower was allegedly overvalued by nearly $323 million in 2019. And the Attorney General also scrutinized how Trump allegedly took these overinflated financial statements and then used them to get loans for a golf resort outside of Miami, a hotel in D.C., and a hotel in Chicago. I, that's interesting because I have heard rumblings that some of these syndicators that we've reported on were doing similar things, but TBD on that. So Larry Silverstein needs little introduction. He's the 92-year-old founder of Silverstein Properties, which has been buying and developing office buildings in New York since the late 1970s. 
He's the man who signed a 99-year lease at the World Trade Center six weeks before 9-11 and spearheaded the redevelopment of the site, helping to revamp Lower Manhattan into a vibrant, bustling neighborhood. As we mentioned above, we recorded this interview at Seven World Trade Center in mid-August, so the air conditioning was on high. We've tried our best to cut that background sound, but it may peek through here and there. Nothing too troublesome, though. You were recently speaking at a business event, and you said that you've been through a number of recessions. There's always opportunities in them. And I've heard a number of people in the industry talk about the downturn in the office market and relate it to the 90s real estate recession. So I was wondering if you could talk about any similarities you see there and any opportunities. Yes, I've been through a multitude of recessions, all going back to the 1800s. Of course, I'm not a youngster anymore. Not quite that far. (laughs) Not quite, but almost. (laughs) Certainly feels like it. Mm. Um, In any event, the recession of of the 90s was a very, very difficult time because it was a countrywide, it was around the United States. And so there were multiple bank failures and bank commitments just disappeared. <laughs> they couldn't fulfill their obligations. So it wreaked havoc throughout the industry. But if you were, if you were forthright in your dealings with the banks, then you had an opportunity to, to make it through. And so not a doubt in my mind that the issues that we're facing today will also produce significant opportunities. So we just we just bought uh, 55. Uh, you read my mind. Broad. That's what I was going to bring up. Right? And so uh, if not for the fact that the office market is experiencing the downturn that it is experiencing, the rooms would be selling that building. And so we decided to buy it. Not for the purpose of retaining it as an office building, but for the purpose of converting it to residential. Right. Right? And so... Uh, and we'll, we'll determine how well it can do, what it can provide us with. Uh, we believe that we'll save a ton of time in terms of conversion as opposed to building from scratch. And time is money. We also think we'll save a significant amount of money physically building the building so that hopefully it'll work out. And at the end of the day, the rooms decided to come back and join us right. in the investment. <laughs> We reported that it took a little bit longer to close on that than you expected. Is that because of the market not being sure where office valuations are going to land? Or was it also a facet of the lending environment just changing just so the, drastically? The environment was constantly changing. Constantly, yeah. right? Tomo. And so it took a, it took a ton of, of uh, determination, mm. um, relationships, and, uh, and reputation. If you had a good reputation. I believe we have that. We were able to make it through, close the deal, and move on to the next project. So it's uh, it'd be interesting to see how this works out. We're anxious. I'm very very excited about it. Yeah. I, well, I know that you announced that 1.5 billion dollar fund for conversions, and I'm just curious because a lot of them happened down here, um, both before and after 9/11. I know the Liberty Bonds were helpful. Nathan Berman did a lot. But I feel like the question now is Midtown and what opportunities are there. So is that something you're thinking about at all, office to residential conversions uptown? I think there will be opportunities up there as well as down here. I think we have maybe more buildings that are older and that don't have the floor plates Mm -hmm. that 
modern day office buildings require. You have more of them downtown and midtown. But there's not a doubt in my mind, buildings will be acquired for purposes of conversion. And it's just a question of time to see how they work out. I also wanted to, I read that you and your wife moved downtown like five years ago or so. About that. And I was thinking, you know, the redevelopment of the World Trade Center was something that sort of helped transform Lower Manhattan into this live, work, play. Was that move in part, I know you said you wanted to get away from the old fogies in Midtown, but did you also want to be a part of that environment and, I guess, signal to others that this is what Lower Manhattan is like? Well, first of all, um, I'm an old fogey. This is my <laughs> wife. I'm 92. She's 99. So we're young, not youngsters. Mm-hmm. And so we found living at Park Avenue and 59th Street Little for many years in mm-hmm. a wonderful apartment. Great, just great location. You could walk from any place that it just great. But we were constantly with our age people. And, and I found that I found it after a while kind of disconcerting. You get into the elevator with them and all they talk about their aches, their pains, their doctor's problems, their pills, <laughs> their vitamins, and all kinds of stuff of that nature. So after a while, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I think it's time to move where younger people exist. So she said, well, you're building a building downtown, you're building a hotel, four seasons. Why don't you put a condo up there? And let's move into it. So I said, okay. So we made the decision. Best decision we could have made. It's terrific. First of all, the place full of young people, baby carriages. Everybody's pregnant. I mean, the number of <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen sweat babies in my life. Either in, in, form, in, in preparation or, or in, in reality. Mm-hmm. Baby carriages all over the place. It's just terrific. The young people, it's just such a delightful experience to be there. Now, how these young people were able to afford our, our prices, I don't know. Right. But they did. And invariably, a lot of them came with cash, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So without mortgages, I said, God bless them. Yeah, sure. So uh, that's testament to young people, how well they're doing today. Uh, certainly, complete change from what I remember when I was that age. I had nowhere near what these young people have. And so being there down at Park Place, it's just, it, it's a new dimension in our lives. And being able to talk with these young people and uh, spend time with them. So I try to, I like to do laps in the pool every morning. You make a whole new set of friends. It's really grand. That's great. It is. It sounds like a great shakeup for you. It's first class. The other wonderful thing about it is our daughter Lisa lives right down below us. Oh, that's a win-win-win. <laughs> so we have, we have her, we have grandchildren, we have one great-grandchild now. It's oh, really, congratulations. It's, thank you. It's really wonderful. So, and it's given us a, a new lease on life, if you will, okay. being with all these young people, having their perspective, their focus, mm-hmm. their attitude. So I recommend it to all old folks. <laughs> all right. We'll put that out as a, <laughs> as a piece. Um, so I want to switch to... The casino bid, because that's very newsy. And um, it was kind of 11th hour for you, but why did you want to throw your hat in the ring there? Number one, we have the land. Number two, it's a good location. Uh, it's not in the center of any particular district. It's at the edge of several districts. Right. So the number of people who can object to us is much less 
Oh, yeah. That's insufficiency. 41st and 11th, right? 41st between 10th and 11th. Okay. And so it's a 92,000 square foot piece of land, pretty good size. And again, not too many people close by to object. So we've submitted along with others. We'll see what happens. So you're sort of, like you said, it's not in the middle of any one district. SL Green has an idea for Times Square. Related has an idea a little south. So why do you think your idea is different or probably better um, in your mind than theirs? Well, if I didn't own it, it wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't be so good. But since I own it, it's terrific. It's the best. <laughs> but it's, um, it's different from anything we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. So since all of our colleagues are doing anything, might as well get into the fray and join them. Sure. I also think the governor needs the revenue we have in the state. Right. The city needs the revenue as well. So they'll both get a proportion of the income that comes from it, comes from the casino. And so I think that's the only reason this is happening, if not for the decision by the state and the city to, to find a source of additional revenue. Um, this might not have happened, but under the circumstance, it has happened. It's moving forward accordingly. So we'll see, see what the ultimate results will be. What do you think that revenue would supplement? Like, where are we lacking as far oh, as... Oh, my goodness gracious. Every time you talk to the mayor or the governor, uh-huh. uh, it becomes the, the needs for additional okay. capital sources, just the migration into the city mm. and the, the needs to provide for those. For the homeless, I mean, just, it's huge. It's a set of circumstances which we're facing here in New York and major cities around the country are facing as well. It's a difficult set of circumstances. And to be able to find a solution is extremely challenging. I want to touch on your tenure, how long you've been in this position, owned this company, been building in New York. Um, Forever. I read an interview where Marty Berger said, you know, he didn't think you would ever retire. He called you a force of nature. I wanted to get your take on retirement. Like, why do you think it would or would not be a good fit for you? What would I do with myself if I retired? Real estate has been my life. And uh, it's been a part of me. My father was a real estate broker. And so I grew up hearing about real estate. My daughter, Lisa hearing about real estate. My son, Roger, hearing about real estate. Mm-hmm. So my daughter, Lisa's in the business. Roger's in the business. Lisa's husband, Tal, is the president of our company. So it's, a, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty unique. And so um, it gives us an opportunity to improve our environment, to improve the city we live in, to improve the city that gave us everything, absolutely everything. Without New York, we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't have what we have today. Uh, New York has been a, an extraordinary place in which to be involved in development activity because you can have such a major impact on neighborhoods that affect the lives of so many people. So it's, I find it a uh, challenging yet extremely productive in terms of the way people experience their lives, mm-hmm. how we can help, how we can make it a better place mm-hmm. to live, a better place in which to function. How we can do things for people who can use help and who need help. And if you want to find people who need help, New York has no sure. shortage of them. Sure. Right. Yeah, so it's in part that 
the work is just as fulfilling as it's always been, but also that you're embedded in this family structure, like you're close to your family, and yes. that's who wouldn't want that. It's, well, it's it's a it's the way we live. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question. This one's kind of a little personal, but I'm curious. I know you've been with your wife for over 60 years. 67. 67, okay. What is the secret to a long, happy marriage? Two words, yes, dear. <laughs> Very simple. <laughs> That's great. I like to hear that. Well, you know, I, uh, every time I have a chance uh, to talk to young people, I tell them that the most important decision they can make in their entire life is to choose the right spouse. Because the wrong one, the wrong one ends up as a disaster, ends up as a divorce. And that, that's, that's a lose-lose situation. Right? Find the right spouse with whom you share core values. And be sure, as you can be, that you are meant for each other. Sharing core values carries an enormously important part of that endeavor. When you meet somebody, spend the time, the necessary time, to understand each other. Where, what, where do you come from? What are your attitudes? Mm-hmm. What do you want to accomplish in your life? Mm-hmm. What are your basic beliefs of life? Do you like drinking? Do you like smoking? Do you like drugs, for example? <laughs> Things of that sort. Uh-huh. Things to stay away from, yeah, as far as I'm sure. concerned. But these are all important aspects. And not assuming that she's going to change you or you're going to change her. The way you are is what, what I think you should recognize. That's the way it is. And are you willing to accept her or him? Are you willing to accept him with, as, he, as he is today with his current set of values and to, without expecting you're going to change those values because it invariably doesn't work. We met in an education camp. She was representing Hunter College. I was representing NYU. You had to work in this camp. So my job was in the kitchen. So I go walk in the kitchen. And who's my boss? There she is. <laughs> <laughs> and she was my boss in that camp environment in 1951. And here we are, 2023. She's still my boss, <laughs> but not just in the kitchen. She's my boss of everything. But it's, it's wonderful. It's worked so well. It's really been just a joyous relationship. All right. That's all I had for you. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Good luck. Oh, thank you. (laughs) The Real Deals Deconstruct is back with its third season, and new episodes drop every Monday. For comments, questions, pitches, or general feedback, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking into the state of the crowdfunding industry and the Crowd Street fallout over the summer. Tune in then.